Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 10th. It's morning in California. Um, and as too often uh, over the last few months, the headlines are very disturbing. Uh, and California seems to be the, the epicenter of these headlines. It's not headlines about COVID, but headlines about the climate, the climate crisis, which is quite literally enveloping California. All sorts of headlines have somehow come together uh, this week. There's a major new UN climate report, lots of warnings about uh, fires spreading, um, the, the five takeaways from the major new UN climate report, at least in the New York Times, I think there's one major takeaway. We're in a major crisis and we're not really, um, we're not really able to even confront its reality, let alone fixing it. Um, we're warned that unsettling heat will scorch much of the United States again this week, both on the Pacific coast and in the Midwest. Uh, the climate crisis is not just an American one. It's extended to the Mediterranean. Greece is burning. Turkey is burning. Uh, Canada is burning. Um, and above all, as I said at the beginning, the, the, the crisis seems to have centered, as so often in California, California always being the future. It was once the future of promise. Now it's an apocalyptic future, a future of warnings. The Dixie Fire, and if it's the, the largest fire ever, every time you read about these, one fire is larger than the other. The issue is not whether it's the largest fire, uh, but the Dixie Fire in Southern Cal uh, in, in, in California is roaring so, um, so uh, out of control that crews have no idea of how it's going to be contained, according to CNN. Uh, firefighters, the heroes, uh, we're seeing truly frightening uh, fire uh, behavior. Um, and the images are, again, uh, truly disturbing. Uh, this from the, the New York Times of, uh, of, um, uh, of the fire in, in Greenville, California. Uh, and the ashes have quite literally and figuratively cast the power a thousand miles from its flames East Coast now, the, the quality of the air is catastrophic. Uh, there's some sense that the fire was originally caused by a PG&E power line. In many ways, um, history is repeating itself. Uh, there was uh, a fire, terrible fire, about four years ago in California, centered on Paradise, California. Here we have it on the map, uh, just north of Sacramento. Uh, an appropriately named town in our apocalyptic future. And now we have a book about the fire of paradise. Paradise, one town struggled to survive an American uh, wilderness. Uh, Lizzie Johnson, who is now based in uh, Washington, D.C., was based in, in, um, in San Francisco. And I'm thrilled that she's joining us today. The book is just out, Paradise. Uh, one town struggled to survive an American wildfire. It's a, a troubling, emotional, dark, but in some ways uplifting book, Lizzie. Congratulations on the book. To what extent looking at the headlines today is, hit, is history quite literally repeating itself? 
Yeah, it is really sad that we're seeing this all over again, but it's not entirely unexpected. I think we've known for a long time that California was going into a fire crisis. It's just really unfortunate that this year, again, it's in Butte County, which is where the campfire of 20 happened. And if you remember that burned down the town of Paradise. Um, right. It seems like the reason for why that fire, the Dixie Fire, which is now almost a half million acres, the reason why it started, it seems, is likely, again, because of a PG&E failure, as the electrical company reported to the state utility. So it does seem oddly prescient that we're in this space yet again. Yeah, and it seems like many of the uh, the residents of Paradise now are particularly anxious because of the repeat, both in terms of the nature of the fire and uh, PG&E's involvement. Um, as I said, Lizzie, this is a, a carefully reported book. You spent a lot of time in Paradise. You went up there during the fires when you were living in San Francisco and reporting for the San Francisco Chronicle. Tell me um, a little bit about Paradise, uh, the inappropriately named place where which which this fire burnt down how many people were killed is it 84 85 yeah 85 and, 85 and certainly um you know the thing is paradise and paradise for a reason that's what it looked like before it came through it was this mountain community of about twenty six thousand people um they would joke that the people in town were either newly wed or newly dead right you had those demographics retirees who wanted to live within the mountain a lot of families who maybe couldn't afford to live in cities like san francisco or sacramento in paradise they could actually have a tiny plot of land and have their children grow up playing outside so just a very normal working class town until the fire hit and within a matter of hours the entire place was burned to the ground lizzie I don't want to draw too many lessons, sort of abstract lessons from this experience of this terrible fire and the death of 85 people in paradise. But what can we learn more broadly? Obviously, it was a tragedy and these things do indeed happen uh, outside even the, the climate crisis. But what do the events of paradise four years ago uh, tell us about the state of our planet and indeed the state of America? Of course. Yeah, I think, you know, when the campfire hit three years ago, it totally wowed the world with just how fierce and quickly it moved in the place that it burned down. Um, up until that point, we really hadn't had a fire burn down an entire town like that. We had seen in 2017 when the wine country wildfires happened, it ripped through the outskirts of town and killed dozens of people and burned down thousands of homes, but to actually have an entire place disappear off of the map was very stark and unheard of with fires. Um, it was the deadliest natural disaster in 2018. And I think it just showed what stands to be lost if we don't get a handle on the climate crisis, right? These are people either lost their life, they lost everything that made up their life, their home, their community, their church, their school, and have to live with that trauma day in and day out. And thinking back just a few minutes ago, you referenced a headline about those from the campfire feeling re-triggered and traumatized by seeing the Dixie fire again. This is something that we're all going to have to live with. And I think Paradise is a really stark example of what we could lose if we don't try and get a handle on the crisis. Um. 
Lizzie, you spent a lot of time with the people of Paradise. You interviewed hundreds of people, but you, in your acknowledgement section, you thanked a lot of the local residents. You seem to have lived there for a while, quite literally. Mm-hmm. Um, how did this, or how has this fire changed them? Because if you go to the Paradise uh, website now for the town, you have an image of rebuilding. Has Has Paradise successfully reinvented itself and have the people of paradise the people who survived the fire have they um, reinvented themselves have they mostly left the town and gone somewhere else yeah i mean that's that's hard right i think anytime you see a major natural disaster there's this sense of wanting to rise from the ashes to recover you'll see a lot of posters that are like santa rosa strong butte county strong um, those buzzword, buzzwords of resilience and survival. But day in and day out, it is really hard to try and regain what has been lost. There is just no way that a town that had that many people, about 26,000, for them to rebuild in only three years, right? So a lot of people have found themselves forced out of paradise as they're either rebuilding their home or confronting the fact that they can't afford to rebuild their home or the fact that you know, every single year worrying if, again, a fire is going to hit town, realizing that that's too much to live with and going somewhere else altogether. Um, you see these big enclaves of former Paradisians living in places like Idaho or Washington State, where they're hoping for a little more peace of mind. So they're trying very hard to rebuild, but it's just going to take a long time to ever get that sense of that sense of town of what was lost back, if it ever does come back. History, as we said, seems to be repeating itself. There's a lot of uh, suspicion, rumors, uh, and as I said, from the LA Times in particular, that PG&E power lines are suspected in the Dixie Fire. Uh, you, your book um, has an element of, of, of moral outrage, I think, in terms of PG&E and, and what, maybe you can correct me here, but what you see as the in in inappropriate punishment uh, for PG&E. Here we have the New York Times uh, headline uh, the, uh, for, for the uh, the campfire, the Paradise Fire, eighty four counts of of manslaughter, um, and the um, the uh, the New York Times recognizes that the CEO of PG&E uh, eighty times said guilty, Your Honor, in terms of the responsibility. But it seems from your book that you don't think this was enough, that PG, PG&E is complicit in this tragedy and that they haven't really been made accountable in the way they should be. I mean, it's tough, right? Because PG&E is a public utility. You can't just force them out of business because they started yet another fire. One in 20 Americans rely on PG&E for gas and electric. And so it's very hard to figure out how to punish them when we also really need the company. And also the rules that are set up, you can only charge a company as an individual. So you can slap them with fines, charge them with manslaughter, but you can't actually put a company into jail. So the question is, how do we actually get this company to change? I think it's less about punishment and more about you know, how can we learn to live on the landscape and harden infrastructure in a way that prevents fires like the one that struck paradise from happening? And, you know, I don't think we have the answer yet because yet again, it seems like 
PG&E was likely the culprit of the Dixie fire of this year, as they reported to the CPUC. And it's just sort of sickening to see that happen, that same headline again and again of, so, you know. So, so has the company learned nothing? I mean, how can it be responsible for two fires, two catastrophic fires within four years in, in, the, in a similar part of California? Uh, right. in, in the book, you draw attention to the fact that the senior people in, in, in at PG&E essentially cashed out. None of them were made personally accountable. Should, in your view, some of these people be criminally accountable or at least financially accountable for the ruining of people's lives and the taking of 85 lives in the campfire? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's easy to want to say that, but it comes down to a matter of what can you prove in court and what is actually right. And so that was just something that the Butte County District Attorney, who was leading the case, the criminal investigation into PG&E after the campfire couldn't do. Um, And you also have to realize that like, it is very hard for such a large company to change course. And it's also not just them. This is a really complex issue in terms of how we build on the land, what money we're giving people to retrofit their homes, how we're managing our forests, in addition to hardening electrical infrastructure. So just attacking one of these Medusa heads doesn't really solve anything. You have to look at all of them together. And it's not an easy answer. It's not as easy as just saying, oh, this former PG&E CEO should be going to jail right now. Uh, Earlier this week, we had the English nature writer, Lucy Jones. She has a wonderful new book, Losing Eden, very different from your book, in which she um, connects the destruction of the environment with the growth of mental illness. Um, What have you noticed about the impact of the fire on the people of paradise, the people who survived, um, and indeed on the way in which nature is being destroyed in California, quite literally burning up in front of our eyes, Mm -hmm. its impact on our mental states? Yeah. I mean, remember that fire in and of itself is not an evil thing. Fire has always been a really healthy part of the ecosystem. It's just that we've gotten to this point where the fires have been stamped out of the environment for so long that when they do happen, they're just huge and destructive and burning down entire towns. And that's not something that is good to see. You know, when you are sitting at your home in San Francisco and the sky turns orange and then goes mm, black with the Which happened act. to me last year, which happened to all yeah. of us last year. Yeah. Yeah, and I was still in San Francisco for that. I mean, you look up and it's just very eerie and you're filled with dread realizing that this is the way the world is turning unless we really start changing things. But that's not good for mental health. You're staring up at the remains of so many people's lives, their homes, everything that made up their world. So if you can imagine how hard that is from hundreds of miles away, now imagine you are back in Butte County, you lost your home in the campfire and you're watching smoke fill the sky again right? Your body reacts to it. You're really nervous and wondering, you know, what's going to happen this time around. That's just not a healthy space for people to stay in. And I think that's one of the really enduring legacies of these fires is you think that, you know, after three years, things will go back to normal and paradise will have rebuilt and everyone is resilient and good to go. And that's just not the case. These fires live with us in so many different ways, not only on the physical landscape, but on our mental landscape as well. Yeah, when you uh, when you compare the the photos of uh, paradise then and now in terms of its destruction, it's shocking. Uh, you you do quite a lot of reporting with young people on schools. How has this impacted um, 
school kids, adolescents? Yeah. I mean, particularly, you know, that first year after the fire, there were a lot of families that were, you know, hanging in limbo, trying to figure out where they wanted to be and figuring out, you know, should we move to a different place and start over? We'll wait out the school year and see what happens. But what that meant is that there were all these kids, particularly the teenagers, who, you know, I remember one girl in particular, she was applying for college and she was like, I don't have an address. So I'm just going to put my dad's business office is my my home address. But like, will the college think it's weird that I'm living in an office building? And like, imagine being 17 years old and losing everything and not even having an address to write on a college application. That's like a very enduring kind of trauma that stays with these kids. Um, not just them, but like the kids who were younger, they had to go through one fire and then they had rolling blackouts last year as PG&E shut out power. They had the pandemic. It's just a lot for kids to live with. You uh, On your Twitter um, page, uh, Lizzie, you quote the UN report that came out earlier this month. One quote you say, the only real uncertainty that remains, its authors say, is whether the world can muster the will to stave off a darker future than the one it already has carved in stone. Uh, you go on, so far the collective effort to slow climate change has proved gravely insufficient. Instead of the sort of emission cuts that scientists say must happen, global greenhouse gas pollution is still growing. And finally, you say, uh, you're quoting uh, the, 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 the report, the oceans are turning acidic. Sea levels continue to rise. Arctic ice is disintegrating. Weather-related disasters are growing more extreme and affecting every region of the world. You, of course, know as much as anyone about these disasters. Um, we've had a lot of shows about this. So one of, yeah. one of the people we had, the teenage anti-plastic activist Hannah Tester has her law of five R's, refuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, raise awareness. What do you think the best way of, of confronting for individuals, not just governments, for all of us, mm -hmm. for our viewers and listeners? How, how do we confront this catastrophe? What are we supposed right. to do? Oh, I mean, I wish I had a really clear-cut answer for you, but I think the first order of business is to just get on the same page about climate change and what's happening. Um, realizing that, you know, these disasters are all interconnected as the climate gets warmer. You know, we have these heat waves in the West, in the Midwest. We have hurricanes that are overwhelming the alphabet system meant to name them. We have these fires year after year after year. I think it's really easy to push it off and say, you know, climate change is something that we will deal with in the future. It's something that's five or 10 years down the road. And that's just not true. We don't, we don't have the privilege of being able to say that anymore. And so I think the best- What do we, but what do, we do? Um, you know, there was a piece in the Times about how expensive it is to drive electric cars. The kind of people who are affected by, um, by the Paradise Fire tend mm -hmm. to be relatively poor. Um, what do you think the best ways for individuals to confront this is? It's not just yeah. about recycling their newspapers, is it? Right. I think the best place to start is to just by having conversations and realizing that this is something that is impacting us. You know, my role as a journalist isn't necessarily to provide all of the answers, and I wish I had them. It's to hold a mirror up to the effects of climate change and how people are impacted by it. And so I think just realizing it 
and having that moment where you're like, we need to act now and to do something and then figuring out how to advocate in the legislature, small steps you can take in your life. But I think the big thing first is to stop that sense of disassociation, that sense of, oh, climate change is five years down the line. I don't have to think about it. Like, no, you should be thinking about it. And maybe that is the first step to finding a solution. We had the, everybody knows, of course, Erin Brockovich, famous movie made about it. She has a new, mm -hmm. she had a new book out last year, Superman's Not Coming, about our national water crisis. I mean, fire and water, the, 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 the crisis of fire and the crisis of water go together. Um, how, in your research on, um, on the Paradise Fires, on, on the campfire, uh, how much is this a water crisis? Mm. I mean, water is a big piece of it, right? Drought is a huge issue in California. We had a historic drought that lasted for many, many years. It caused a lot of trees in the mountains to become diseased or to die off completely. And so the mountains are stacked with timber, essentially. And that's partly why these fires are getting so bad, because, you know, when they hit the forest, there's nothing to stop them. They just rip off and cause fire behavior, unlike anything we've really seen before. Um, but again, it's sort of like I was saying earlier, it's a lot of interconnected things, right? It's not just drought. It's the fact that the rains are coming later every year. It's about the fact that temperatures are higher, which means that vegetation is drying out faster. It's about how we build, you know, it's like untangling a knot. You can't just pick one piece off and expect to solve it. So rain is a big piece of it, but there are also so many other things that have gotten us to this point. We're living with the legacy of our past mistakes too. How far can we go in in in, in critiquing um, the structural nature nature of our economic life? We've had a number of shows about the crisis of the environment being a crisis of capitalism. The the, the British academic Tim Jackson's written a very influential book, Post Growth: Life After Capitalism. He was on the show recently. It was a very uh, a very popular uh, interview. To what extent is the crisis, in your view, one of capitalism, of the markets? Do the markets need to be more controlled? Mm, you know, I can't speak too much about economics. I was a wildfire reporter for a long time. But what I will say is I, I feel like the people who are bearing the brunt of the climate crisis, whether or not it's driven by economic markets and whatnot, are the people who are the more marginalized ones at the edges of society, the ones who can't afford to make great change or have much power over decisions being made. Um, and they're the ones getting burned off their land and getting burned out of their houses. So I think, you know, we can't just focus on like the markets, but also just realize the impact it's having on real people's lives too, and that they're having to live with decisions that other people are making. Well, Lizzie Johnson's book, Paradise, One Town Struggle to Survive an American uh, wildfire is, is out today. Uh, Lizzie, um, everyone's gonna, I mean, everyone needs to read your book, but, uh, for people who haven't read it yet, how would you very briefly describe paradise before the fire and paradise today when we yeah. can't go back to 2016, unfortunately, right. uh, I never went to paradise then or now, but what, what was it like and what is it like today? Mm-hmm. So before the campfire of 2018, Paradise was this tiny little mountain town. It was tucked in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada up above Chico, which is this valley city. And 
you know, people always joked that it was named Paradise because that's how it felt. The water tasted really crisp there. The air was really clean. People had that strong sense of community. They liked being out among the ponderosa pine. They liked um, having their annual Christmas tree lighting celebration. They had Johnny Appleseed days and gold nugget days to honor their gold rush history. And after the campfire, all of that was gone. There was one tiny little stretch of downtown where the businesses survived. There they had like a Starbucks and a hardware store. And that's about it. And if you turned on the any off-road, it was just road after road, cul-de-sac after cul-de-sac of leveled houses where all you could maybe see were the husks of washing machines or a dryer or one single chimney that was standing. But it was nothing. Even the forest was gone. You could just see for miles and there was nothing to see except rubble. It's a metaphor, of course, your book, um, and um, your publisher has uh, the marketing associated with it. They say the future of our warming planet is written in flames. Um, your book is, is a good warning. Uh, finally, Lizzie, if there's one thing people can do to stave off those, fame, those flames, one thing to begin. Yeah, to get beyond I mean, paradise, to, to put it in metaphorical terms, which we all need to do, particularly in California. Right. I mean, I think particularly for Californians, it's thinking about where you live and what climate disasters you might be impacted in your area and being prepared for that. So I think for a lot of people that are living on fire prone land, they don't have a go bag. They don't know where they'll go if a fire causes them to evacuate. And sometimes that's the simplest thing you can do to help make sure that you stay safe and that your neighbors stay safe. Has a, have a system in place you know what to do if the worst case scenario happens. Because you can't just assume that it won't happen to you. Probably will at some point. Yeah, it's kind of like COVID in a weird kind of way, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, Paradise, unfortunately, is a very timely book given uh, the fires engulfing California and the world today. But it's out uh, today by Lizzie Johnson. It's her first book, Paradise, One Town's Struggle to Survive an American Wildfire. And above all else, I think it's the the human story of how fire destroys our lives, or mostly destroys our lives, kills mm -hmm. people. But it's also a story of bravery uh, and initiative. Uh, and in, in broad terms, as I said, it's a story about the responsibility of PG&E and why perhaps they didn't get the punishment that they deserve. So congratulations, Lizzie, on the book. You were based in Northern California. Now you're in D.C. in these strange post-COVID, post-COVID times where we're still kind of locked inside. We're not mm -hmm. sure what to do. Uh, people need to read your book, Paradise. What else should people be reading, though, in these strange times? Yeah, so if you want to know more about fires, um, one of my friends just wrote this book about inmate firefighters in California called Breathing Fire by Jamie Lowe. I would highly recommend it if you haven't read it yet. It's also a new release, and it talks about the inmate firefighting structure um, a lot of people don't realize that our fires are also put out by incarcerated people. So if you want a nice pair oh, yeah, of that brings in another of our perennial themes, um, the incarceration, the injustice of the incarceration system. They all seem to come together all too often, particularly in California. Well, Lizzie Johnson, the author of Paradise, congratulations on the new book. Um, Thank you. I hope we'll get more from you on fires and their broader impact on society and indeed on the broader environmental crisis in, enveloping us. 
keep well and safe in Washington, D.C., and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me.